Welcome to What's the Word Downtown, a weekly podcast dedicated to mining the depths of the word, a word that's sharp and active in downtown Tyler, Texas. Join Eric, Matt, and Mike as we get the word out at Bethel. Hey, welcome back to What's the Word Downtown. I'm Matt. This is Pastor Eric Barton, and we are going to be discussing Titus chapter 2 today. You Mm -hmm. preached yesterday, and you were back up on the third floor. And you were bringing it. We're excited to hear from you. It was a frothy, flop sweat kind of a mess, but it was a great time to finish up chapter two and, uh, yeah, to keep plowing through this series on Titus. Yeah, and and there is, uh, it's really specific instruction to the church, Mm -hmm. but we read it through the context of specific instruction to that church. Right. But we read it because the word is alive and living. Yeah. We read it as specific instruction to us in our church, in our context. Was there any are there any areas where through through chapter two you go, eh, you know, this was an outdated thing. Uh, you know, this doesn't really apply to us. Or was it I mean, is it pretty can you really pretty much read it like, hey, here's Paul, an apostle of Jesus, yeah. telling us what things should, can, ought look like within the church, within a healthy church? It's more descriptive than prescriptive, perhaps. Or is it prescriptive as well? Most of it, I would say, at least at least in Titus, mm-hmm. is prescriptive because he's writing in broad brushstrokes. He's writing ecclesiologically, meaning sort of not, not theoretically, but he's writing in broad brush uh, topics and concepts, not specific laundry lists mm-hmm. of instruction. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so because of that, it translates and ports across all time and space. One of the ways we do exposition and exegesis is we mine out the timeless truths. What did it mean to them there and then? And how does that apply to all churches at all times and all spaces? And that's how you know that it's mm-hmm. practical and perfect for us in our context. And so Titus is so practical and pertinent to us because it's a predominantly Gentile set of churches mm. in Western civilization in the middle of the Mediterranean, which we're not, but we are very Western in our culture and our context and the way our society is organized. And so what Paul writes to Titus to organize these churches to be the instrumentality of light and life and redemption in that context, which was, by all practical purposes, was working. And because Greek well, society was working, and, and Paul says, no, but we're going to redeem that. And what you said about, hey, uh, Cretans can be Christians too. Mm-hmm. Okay, so this idea, now what you said, and, and uh, being that it's a, it's a letter predominantly to Gentiles, what what is being said to the Cretans essentially is, you have a new identity out of something that has nothing to do with you. That's right. That's but has chosen to have everything to do with you. And that's the gospel. It hunts us down by grace, and we'll get into that next week. Mm-hmm. It hunts down people from Crete who have no part with Messiah, nor should they. Yeah. And yet the love of God, the grace of God appears, hunts them down, folds them in. Remember, Crete's an ancient enemy. Right. Crete is mentioned in the book of Genesis as the origin of what becomes the the 
centuries old enemy of Israel, the Philistines. Mm -hmm. And so when you have the book of Titus written to the origin of the Philistines, the enemies of Israel now mm -hmm. being grafted in and adopted heirs, denizens, citizens of the coming kingdom already. I mean, that is... Goliath has become a brother in Christ. Exactly right. That's exactly right. Goliath is a deacon. Where the Old, where the old Testament would kill him and right. put him down eye for an eye, the New Testament, the new word of covenant love is redemptive Inclusion. to the evil one. Yeah. Those who were outside because of Messiah's, because of Jesus's substitution accomplishes even a Philistine, even a Goliath, Gosh, even an know, East Texan is in. You have, on the one hand, Jews who, unless they forgot, know that they are a chosen people of God, mm -hmm. who are having to receive a foreign message that says, you have a Messiah, oh, and you were in need of saving. Yeah. To which they were mm -hmm. resistant. Mm -hmm. And then you have, a, you have a Gentile community who is saying, you have the greatest gift in the cosmos, but it has nothing to do with your family of origin. Right. It has nothing to do with your locale. It has nothing to do with all of those things that would have prevented you. In other words, you are loved in spite of all of these reasons that God would, ought, should have nothing to do with you. Mm -hmm. Instead, does right. and is moving through your community. In other words, that, that the source of everything that's prescribed here is something that they can only recognize by faith. Correct. And Paul will get into that a little bit in the coming passage as we start chapter 3. But yes, I think it's also why it's so beautiful that a Jewish apostle, not just a Jew, but Saul of Tarsus, Jew of Jews, Pharisee of Pharisees, is the one writing to these Cretans. And I don't know that Titus himself was Cretan, but he's certainly a Gentile. And for him to say, look what's happened. Look what's happened as the Christ event has occurred, Messiah has come, and it's got nothing to do with my mm -hmm. discipline as a Pharisee. It's got nothing to do with your lack of discipline as a Gentile. It's Jesus. Man, I know I keep going back to marriage time and again, but what we often tell couples is, look, couples that are married, we say, there is nothing physical that actually connects you. Right. You're, you're, you're diff different genetics. You're coming from different families. We don't have it. We're not located in Arkansas. Um, that was really wrong. Strike. We'd like to edit that, edit that out. <laughs> uh, but the idea being that the thing that actually connects Megan and I is only connects us by faith. Mm -hmm. The connective reality, the, the, what is it, the third cord that binds, the mm -hmm. tie that binds, that is something that is not perceived by our eyes. Right. It's perceived by faith. And God gives us that capacity uh, again and again. And that's what the Gentile, that's what these Cretans are here. To, that's what they're, that they're receiving from Paul is this message that is to embolden them at the deepest space, of that, that, that source space. Yeah. And in the marriage context, we can't help it. We're still grasping in the dark and, and groping with our fallenness and our fragility and our flesh we still treat one another transactionally. I still look at my wife as really, you know, how can she benefit me? How can she do things that I need? But what the gospel in all of the, the Bible 
And of course, specifically here in Titus is showing us is that, no, that's not where value comes. Jesus loved these people, loves these people on the island of Crete and loves these people in East Texas and all over the world, not at all for what they're capable of producing and providing, but because of what he's like. And that's all of Ephesians 1. This is the kind of God we have. He loves people in spite of their lack of loveliness. And so marriage really is to be an encapsulation, a microcosm, a nutshell picture of the gospel. I love my wife in spite of, at times, hypothetically, a lack of loveliness. She loves me at all times, despite the lack of loveliness. It's living and moving and having your being in the presence of, or at, at foundationally rooted in, the idea of imputation. Mm -hmm. That as Christ has filled what was formerly an empty, like filled, he's filled me with faith. Yeah. He's filled this empty container with faith. And... I am called and equipped uh, to fill and to show, lavish, impute loveliness on a wife that doesn't always act lovely. Correct. Hypothetically. Hypothetically, of course. Right. Yeah. To cherish her as if she was worthy of being cherished. Right. right. And, the, and there's some... And you can't yeah. do that just because you know that you should. Mm. That requires mm. a grasping and a clutching and a clinging to the gospel, a mm -hmm. filling and leading of the Holy Spirit where you die. Because sometimes cherishing that which seems uncherishable, loving that which seems unlovely. is an impossible It's task. hard. It's impossible. But we are people of the future, we might say, yes, because the kingdom well. has been dragged back. We are people of the future who actually have the capacity to do that, not just with our wives, but with neighbors who irritate us, with community members who maybe offend us because of their particular stance on this issue or other, we get to love them for their sake, mm -hmm. which is hard. It's, it's very difficult. No, it's impossible to, mm -hmm. to be that selfless, but we're gospel people. We're gospel people, not just one Jesus walking around in the flesh in Palestine 2,000 years ago. It's what Jesus was talking about when he says of John the Baptist— born of women, there's nobody greater than him, but all who come after will be even greater than him because the future's been dragged back. We are now people of the gospel living, indwelled by the Spirit of God. John the Baptist was not indwelled by the mm -hmm. Spirit of God. Mm -hmm. We are. Mm -hmm. We have the completion and the closure of the canon of Scripture, mm -hmm. and we have one another. Mm -hmm. Man, we're future people. Mm -hmm. And so we are actually equipped, despite the still nuisance presence of our sin, to love one another. And so what Paul talks about, to do good work, not just behavioral deeds that are moral. Yes, of course. But more than that, to live my life for you kind it's of life. So the, the ecclesiology tucked into this chapter two is so powerful. So I, was, I was just watching, um, uh, and this is not a recommendation. I always have to almost <laughs> always caveat my, my choice of viewing with, I'm not recommending this. I'm saying I watched it. Hmm. I watched it with Maggie. Okay. We watched it. Oh gosh. Okay. Now listen. I don't know if you saw it. Is I actually. The, is, is there a Veggie Tales version this, of this, it? It was a Stephen King, and I always oh. liked Stephen King because I always felt that maybe he didn't have the the uh, he didn't deliver the solution in Jesus, but he effectively understands the presence of evil 
in a way that's pretty theologically grounded. No doubt. And what I would say about, and I grew up on, I mean, you couldn't, you couldn't get me to read uh, The Secret Garden or Anne of Green Gables or Pride <laughs> and Prejudice. I wanted Christine, give uh-huh. me Pet Cemetery. I mean, I was steeped on that stuff. Sure. I, was, I was into looking into evil. And I said, I don't mean it like, oh, it's alluring. What I'm saying is, is like, tell kids the truth because they know something's going on deep down inside them. And there's a, there's a conflict that's afoot. The old ancient literary expression for that, the yeah. thing that drew you back then as a kid, you didn't know yeah. it, and I didn't know it either because yeah, yeah. I read all that stuff too. Yeah. And we talk about it in Scripture, what the gospel is, it's called a you catastrophe. Yes. Not Y-O-U catastrophe, right. that's E-U. what I am. E-U, a good catastrophe. Yeah. Something that breaks in and shatters the evil is a you catastrophe. Yeah. Eucharist comes from that. Exactly yeah. correct. Yeah. It breaks in and it shatters the presence of a very real palpable Man, offensive and oppressive evil, evil. Yeah. but yeah. the catastrophe is this remarkable burst of goodness and glory and grace that shatters all that. And I think a guy like Stephen King recognizes that, hey, we didn't ask for all this. There is fallenness. There is brokenness. Yeah. I mean, Paul talks about it in Romans. All creation groans as in labor pains. Mm-hmm. It's bad. We need a catastrophe. Every one of the, it's all it's always kids. And everyone in, in it, it's all about the kids and their own new catastrophe that they're each having in their own way. Yeah. And what they discover is the power of the church, mm. essentially, when they say it is the presence of fear manifesting in, in, in evil. Wow. And the only way we can overcome it is by holding on to one another. Yeah. And reminding one another. That's it. That it, is, that it doesn't really exist unless we're alone so much that we're overcome by oh, fear. Oh, man. I mean, it was like Stephen King is preaching the gospel. And yeah. I, and at the same time, I'm, Maggie's been after me to watch this movie because a lot of her friends have watched it, and it becomes sort of a cultural um, a diagnosis or, you know, like it's like... Or a rallying cry rally- for community. Yes. That they need and want that. They're not quite but sure but what to rally around there's also some it. sense that... Like Jung said, the thing that I need to find most will be found in the place I least want to look. Of course. And as Maggie grows, I'm sorry to be talking about and working some stuff out here with the pastor. <laughs> as Maggie grows up, she has she's like, Dad, don't don't prevent me from looking at the thing I need to look at. Right. You know? And but what you've provided already is essentially the sandbox right. in which she can look in the dark corners where the kitties have been. And that's okay. Well, yeah, and to be able to look at a piece of popular culture and see the way that it resonates with our actual experiences and to the degree that it doesn't uh, rouse unbelief, but instead, I mean, I, I was actually, I saw in, in that because I was, because of the preaching and the teaching that we're sitting under, I see, I see tons of real applicable truth to my life and even in my life as a Christian in this specific church. Yeah. I need these people that I not be overwhelmed by fear of the future, shame of the past, right. and constriction in the present. Absolutely. Man, yeah. that's well that's it. And that's what the church is to be and to do, particularly in a dark and dying world who has looked everywhere else for the answers. Mm-hmm. Looking for love in all the wrong places mm-hmm. they should write a song about uh, yeah. that. And never really finding it, but sort of placating the the drone and the groan. Mm-hmm. But the church gets to say, no, 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 this this is the answer. 
I know that we are offended by the gospel, the eucatastrophe of the coming of Christ, mm-hmm. because the solution comes to us from outside. It, it, it's not within me. It, no, there, there's no champion within me. What Paul tells the people of Crete and ultimately us is that the Savior has come. Grace has come. It's a person. Mm-hmm. It's not an idea. It's not a program. He has come, available and accessible to all peoples, which was remarkable for a Jew to say that. I mean, think about, this is why when he went from synagogue to synagogue, they always wanted to throw rocks at him until he died. Because he was saying the Messiah has come for all peoples. And the eucatastrophe extends to the Jewish faith. Absolutely. And in fact, that's what Jesus' harshest words were result. Were, it was a deconstructing force right. taking away from them uh, a presumed strength that in, in, in actuality only caused to increase their trespass. Right. The thing that God gave them, they took and, which we all do this, the good thing God gave them, they took and made it godless, mm-hmm. which is idolatry. Mm-hmm. And so Jesus has some very harsh words against that. He, and he says it over and over again. I'm not here to abolish Moses. You've misunderstood but it. But they made it godless by making it a god. Exactly. Exactly. They, I don't know what the word is instead of capitalized. Deified, you know, they deified the, the law of The God. process and the procedure because that put them in a position of sovereignty and not in need of grace because it was all about then their accomplishment, their achievement. And Jesus says, no, 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 you don't get to be sovereign, but you are loved. I it's rem- better. I remember being at a, it was a Connecticut synagogue where I was working as a, in a, as a cater waiter. And I got in early and I, we had set up and I was alone in this in the synagogue and that everybody else was out in the sort of fellowship hall or whatever they call that in the temple. Right. But it was, and I was, and there was this uh, statue of Moses, tall, long beard, wow. bald head. And it was black and it was, you know, uh, and very powerful. And I looked at it and I thought, man, for these people, this is a deliverer. Yeah. And they look, but, but, but not a final deliverer. Right. A story of old that encapsulates the mm. desire and the need for deliverance, but ultimately, that's a deliverance that's not sustainable. It's a story of old that says God will deliver, but Yeshua is the oh, answer man. of his deliverance eternally and temporally. Yeah. And um, Jason Michelli, Crackers and Grape Juice podcast <laughs> sent me a shirt last week with a picture of Martin Luther on it. And down below it says, Jesus is not a new Moses. Yeah. What does that mean to you? Uh, a lot. <laughs> yeah. And I don't know exactly what he meant by it per se. I think I do. What did, what did Moses bring down from the mountain? He brought down a law. <laughs> and to that point, yeah. this is why I think I, think I know yeah, what it yeah, means. Yeah. To this day, if you walk through a Jewish cemetery, which... I don't know why you would, but right. you do recreationally. You walk right. through we the cemetery. We got a little time this summer. Sure. We'll see. You'll see a lot of the grave markings as we typically will have in a Christian cemetery. There's crosses. Mm-hmm. On a lot of Jewish graves, there's that same statue of Moses, mm-hmm. which I always think is just the greatest horror. Mm-hmm. If the first thing I see at the resurrection is Moses, that's condemnation. Mm-hmm which is what Luther railed against. Mm. No, we will not be condemned. The devil uses the law of Moses to accurately accuse. Yes. And Luther said, what of it, you devil? You're right. 
but the cross of Christ rebuke you. And so Luther was adamant about that because he was so fastidious in his confession of three hours, four hours of trying to get everything out that by the time he started over it couldn't relieve his mind. It he never found peace. No. And so Jesus is not here with a different batch of condemnation. In fact, what Jesus does in the Gospel of Matthew is he gives a five-part sermon that's really effectively new Torah. Hmm. Oh, you thought the bar was here, Jesus says? This is the bar of Moses. You yeah. thought it was, and you're right. But I'm telling you, the bar is actually up here. It's a new Torah, and it's way higher than you ever imagined. And you couldn't even get to this one. You certainly can't get to this one, but I am the one who will make you clean. And that's the you catastrophe. So when he The first says, one that he encounters after the Sermon on the Mount is a leper yeah. who says, under Moses, you're ostracized and you're out and you die mm -hmm. alone outside the camp. But Jesus touches him and says, I make you clean. And that's all the difference between Moses and Jesus. So when he says, be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect, this is not a prescription. This is a description of what it is to take on Christ. I would even say it more than that. Yes. And more than a description or a prescription, it's a promise. Mm -hmm. You shall be perfect. You shall be perfect. Mm -hmm. Already. And not yet. Yeah. Because the future's been dragged back into the presence of, or the present age. And so we are holy, but not sinless just yet. We're saints and yet sinners. But holiness is really God's righteousness rolling forward, which we, though we are still prone to wander, prone to leave the God we love, still get to roll forward like righteousness rolling down like a river, even though we are still in the midst of this overlap of the ages. And so we, like you said, just like the children in it, we have to have one another. And so what we said in this passage in Titus, just to lay in this plane, yeah. grace has come, Messiah has come, the Christ event has occurred, and glory is coming. And so in the meantime, we get to be the righteousness of God in the world, which is not how most of us think about our lives as Christians. We think, be good and then die and go to heaven. No, 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 no. We get to be the rolling down like a river righteousness of God in this age. Yes. And so what a joy, what a thrill, what a purpose-filled life we get to have. Mm -hmm. Let's look at Titus 3 this coming Sunday, 10 a.m. We'll look forward to seeing you. God bless. Bye now.